And so I want to continue our discussion this morning in Colossians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to tackle three verses this morning that kind of pick up where we left off last week. And, and last week we, we had this whole conversation um, about the preeminence of Jesus, right? Like this is going to get knocked over if we leave it right here. Uh, about the preeminence of, of Jesus, right? That um, all things have be, been created by him, for him, through him. All right, so everything belongs to Christ. He is over all things, and we look specifically at the reality of his role in creation. Uh, we talked um, about not just his role in creation, but uh, the fact that as having been created, we are accountable to him. And then we talked about how he was also the head over the church. And then lastly, he was the head over the sovereign plan of God. And uh, it, God has saw fit to reconcile sinful man to himself through Jesus. Jesus is the head over God's plan for humanity. And I do want to tell you very quickly, uh, this morning in, in Equip class, uh, Corey started a little mini-series that we're going to tackle about this reality of the gospel and building our own personal testimony and being able to, to share the gospel with folks and uh, if you missed it this morning, I do really, really, really want to encourage you to join us next week at 9 um, as he just continues to kind of walk through that over the course of the next few weeks. And so excited about that. But in a nutshell, what he's unpacking, unpacking, unpacking is, uh, Jenna, for those of you who don't know, Jenna is with Misty with a group of 17s at a winter weekend camp in Ohio, and I, I think at this point in the weekend, like life is catching up to me, and now I can't talk. And I, you know, the girls have been great, but uh, I don't know how she does it. If you have a wife who stays home with your kids, uh, love her and love her well because she is a saint. Uh, but anyways, um, so there's this plan that's that's unfolding that God has brought into motion uh, through Christ. And, um, and so uh, we're going to look at this reality where Paul uh, continues to discuss reconciliation. That was the big fancy word that we saw last week that, uh, where God says, you know, that according to God's, or Paul says that according to God's plan, he reconciled sinful man to himself. And so again, the idea of reconciliation is that there's this, this gap that exists, exactly what Corey was talking about this morning, that God has bridged through Christ. That means to take two parties who are far off or estranged and to bring them together. And so Paul will continue this idea of reconciliation. Technical definition, if you will, according to the Baker Encyclopedia, is that reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relationship and of peace where before there had been hostility and alienation. And I love the definition that the Baker Encyclopedia uses, and, and, and you'll understand why as we work our way through our text this morning. But what Paul's going to do for us, we're going to see, is he's going to move from the general, it was God's plan to reconcile sinful man to himself through Christ, to the specific, some more meat on the bone, if you will, of what God has done and how it is that God has done it. And furthermore, why it is that God has done this, okay? And so not only is God pleased to reconcile all things to himself through Christ and through the cross of Christ, uh, but, but what has this reconciliation that pleased the Father accomplished? So that's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's look together at our text. I'll begin reading in Colossians 1, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together as we consider this bridging of uh, the gap between us and God through Christ. Father, what a privilege it is, God, to know that your word would tell us that we are afar off from you, but in your grace and in your mercy, you have made a way for us to be brought near. And so, Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to understand, God, the reality that our condition, our situation of being afar off from you, we could do nothing to change. It was simply an act of your love toward mankind. God, it was an act of your grace and your mercy to bring us near or to make bringing us near possible. You didn't have to. God, you didn't need to, but you did. And so for that this morning, we thank you. So as we look into your word, we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we interact with your word today in a way that's fresh and anew. We pray that you would stir our hearts and challenge us. And God, we pray that today we might be moved to consider uh, some of the realities that we'll talk about this morning uh, from these few short verses. Father, work in our hearts and in our lives. God, not just for our good, but for your glory. Father, do mighty things so that you would be made famous and so that all your glory would be on display for the world to see through your people. Father, we praise and thank you for the privilege to open your word and to freely discuss it and, God, to be challenged by it. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit that indwells those who are in Christ, that gives us the ability to know and understand your word and helps us to rightly apply it. So, God, we pray that your spirit would move among us today for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, the idea of reconciliation begins with the fact that man is afar off from God. This is what the word of God would teach us. We need to be reconciled. Man in his natural state is plagued by sin. Again, as you were walking through this this morning, I literally was wondering if you hacked my computer this week, you didn't use the exact same words that I did, um, but you unpacked some of the exact realities that we will talk about this morning in terms of the condition that we have. The natural man is plagued by sin and therefore separated from God. It's not good. We have a dilemma. We are in a situation that is very bleak and dire. You and I have no claim to God in our natural state. You can do nothing to change your natural state. And your natural state is one of separation from God. We live in a world where people talk a lot about God. We live in a world where people have a lot of uh, concepts of God. But you can know a lot of things about God and still be separated from him. You can know a lot of things about God and still be plagued by sin that has left you needing to be reconciled to him. 
So we begin this morning by considering this reality, the natural condition of man. And none of us are exempt from this. You're not good enough to be exempt. You haven't done enough to be exempt. Not that I just want to beat people up, but you're not special. You don't get to be excluded from the natural condition that plagues mankind. Sin entered into the world through one man. That one man was the the head of, of all humanity. Adam, he was the firstborn. He was the the representative. And because sin entered into the world through Adam, uh, death came with sin. Paul tells the church at Rome, and sin brought death. And so the natural man, the condition that the natural man is in is not one that should be taken lightly. And it grieves me how lightly the church takes sin. It grieves me how lightly people consider the reality of their accountability before God. Your condition before God, apart from Christ, is bleak. It's downright terrible. And it isn't just about the fact that you're afar off from God. When you, when you think about living in the natural state of man, not only are you afar off from God, but it's actually a descriptor of exactly how you function in your life. Our position before God is one of alienation. You remember that was one of the words that the Baker Encyclopedia used to describe reconciliation. We are alienated from God. This is what Paul says. And you, he's now writing again to the, the Colossian believers He's writing to believers. He says, you who once were, it's past tense, you once were in this natural condition, and in that natural condition you were alienated. It's not just about proximity, but it does start there. To be alienated is to be estranged from. It's to be at odds to the point that there is no relationship between the two parties. Most people, in their natural state, do not view themselves as estranged from God. I meet a lot of people who, they've got it worked out. They, they know where they're at. They know where they're standing. And, and, and me and the big man upstairs, we've got it sorted out. If I could love it with you this morning, no, you don't. He's not the big man upstairs. He's the sovereign, creating, sustaining God of the universe who you are accountable to for your sin. And there is one way in which your sin is accounted for. If you're right with God, that one way is Christ. As Corey talked about this morning, if your sin is not accounted for in Christ, it will be accounted for by you when you stand before him as judge. So you got this relationship that it doesn't exist. It's it's broken. These these two parties are at odds. And at the risk of being too simplistic, being alienated is to be considered an alien. (laughs) Right? And this is a picture that I I think this morning we all understand. I, I, I think we live in a world that's obsessed with the idea of aliens. Right? And, and so because this is true, we can easily understand that to mean some kind of being that is afar off from us with these alien ideas, it's we don't have a relationship with them. 
We're, we're intrigued by the idea of the unknown in our world and in our culture, okay? But we recognize in our, our, out of our intrigue or in our intrigue that we don't have a relationship with the aliens. <clears throat> and this is a descriptor, right? Like this is a, a reality of our natural state being separated from God, right? We're estranged from him. We are aliens or he is alien toward us. We don't know him. If you don't have a relationship with, with, with God through Christ, you don't know God. You can know stuff about God, just like we know some stuff about aliens, we think. But that doesn't mean that you know God. That doesn't mean that the sin problem that plagued you has been dealt with just because you know some stuff. There's a, a reality that you can know a lot and still be alien and still be estranged from God. And so we think about this idea of alienation from God. It isn't just about uh, our, our distance from God, our proximity. It's also about our disposition towards God. And here's the reality, if I can just level with you this morning. Your disposition towards God and his word says a lot about your proximity to God. You understand what I'm saying, what I mean when I say that? Our disposition towards God, in other words, our practice, what we do, who we really are, not right now, y'all look good today. Smiling faces, man, let's just be real. We can paint them on on Sunday mornings, can't we? But our disposition towards God when we're not here when we're at home, when we're at work, when we're with our families, right? Our disposition towards God in all of these areas says a lot about our proximity to God. And Paul says two things about those who are alienated from God, that is, who are far off from God. First of all, he says they are hostile in mind. They are hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. To be hostile is to be an enemy of Raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. That's rhetorical. Raise your hand if you have ever thought of yourself as an enemy of God. I have never met anyone who willingly accepted the fact that they were an enemy of God's in their natural state. But that's interesting because that's exactly what God's word would teach us. We are at enmity. We are at odds. We are enemies of God's in our natural state. And that's exactly what Paul, when he says that they were hostile in mind, they were a personal, individual, each entity was an enemy of God. Not the world in a general sense, but every single individual person in their natural state is an enemy of God's. And what that means is our minds are at odds with. Our minds are in opposition to the things of God and the things which he desires. The natural man, listen, neutrality is a myth. You've heard me say this before. You will probably hear me say it again. There is no such thing as neutral. There is no such thing as, as, as being, is staying still. Right? And so we don't, we can't say, well, in my natural state, I, I'm not in relationship with God, but I'm not really doing bad things. Yes, you are. You're, in, you're either a friend of God's or an enemy of God's. Those are the two options. 
And those two options are defined by God, right? We talked last week or a couple weeks ago about God creating the standard. He's created it and that's it. You're a friend of his or you're an enemy of his. And in your natural state, you are an enemy of his. You think and you function in opposition to the things of God and the things that he desires. But it's interesting because our deeds are not what establish the fact that we are hostile towards God. We just are. The presence of sin, the reality of what God's word teaches, establishes the fact that we are enemies of God's. But what our deeds do, our hostile deeds, what they do is they propel us further and further into hostility of our minds towards God. I'm going to read a passage of scripture and then I'm going to explain it. Maybe a passage that you are familiar with. Romans chapter 1 is a tremendous example of the progression that we just described. Paul writing to the church of Rome says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now that was a lot. And that was a big mouthful, but I don't think that I have to begin to unpack what's happening here. Paul is describing people who have worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And when Paul is talking here about This reality of being hostile in mind and doing evil deeds and it becomes this progression in our lives, right? The Tyndale New Testament commentary on Colossians describes the process of our minds uh, becoming more and more hostile like this. Wrong thinking, and this this is a summary of what we just read in Romans 1. Wrong thinking leads to vice, vice to further mental corruption, so that the mind, still not totally ignorant of God's standards, finds itself applauding evil. In other words, when our thinking is not brought into subjection to God's word, we will develop habits that are morally wrong. There is no exception to this rule. If your thinking, if your minds are not brought into subjection to God's word, you will continue to be morally bankrupt. Now, you probably don't think that way this morning. 
You probably didn't come here thinking, even as a professing believer, now that may not be what Paul is describing here in Romans, but even as a professing believer, if you do not continually subject your mind to the truth of God's word and then live in obedience to it, then you're going in, 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 in the other direction. You're either subjecting yourself to God's ways or you're subjecting yourself to the world's ways because neutrality is a myth. And the more we practice that which is morally wrong, the more debased and unmoral our desires will become to the point where eventually we applaud evil. There is no greater demonstration of this than the quote-unquote sexual revolution that we're living in in America. Did you know, maybe you did because it's become a little more public now, But did you know that there are child pedophilia advocate groups? There are people who are working together to establish laws that say it's okay to have sex with children. I don't know if there is a greater demonstration of a debased mind morally. And yet, we shouldn't be surprised... As much as these things anger me and I struggle with them, I do, i got to be honest with you, just talking about it gives me a pit in my stomach. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised about what took place at the Grammys last Sunday. I only heard about it secondhand, and I didn't really look into it too much, but I know it sounded like it was a big fest of worshiping Satan. I'm not surprised. And brothers and sisters, you shouldn't be surprised either. But you should be girding up the loins of your mind with God's word so that you can recognize these things, that you can interact with these things. Because you're going to have opportunities to engage with people about things like pedophilia laws. You're going to have opportunities to engage with people with things about like what's transpiring at the Grammys. We shouldn't be surprised Because those who don't know Christ are alienated from him. And the more they live out the desires of their flesh, the more debased the desires of their flesh become. This is not just proven out practically. When you look at the world around us, it's what God's word teaches us. I want to level with you. I've never understood the belief that says, I can't believe somebody would do that then you don't understand just how morally bankrupt people are. And there is nothing this morning that is beyond your ability to do. And I don't mean that like you can do anything and be anyone. I mean, if you live your life unchecked and subjected to the word of God, there is no depth to the depravity that you could pursue. Things sitting here this morning, you would never in a million years imagine that you would pursue or, or, or think is okay. That's how we get to where we are. People who claim to know God, people who claim to know God's word, really don't know God's word. They maybe don't even know God. I don't know. I'm not the discerner of hearts. But when we don't know God's word, that's where we're like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. That's okay. Well, that's how they feel. We must be subjecting ourselves to God's word. Because if we don't, number one, we're in trouble. 
The church is in trouble in an earthly sense. The church isn't in trouble. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But it doesn't mean that things aren't going to spiral out of control and get worse practically. I think it's part of the plan. You know, you're going to see a deterioration of the world. But brothers and sisters, we've got to understand that there's the natural man in his condition that's morally bankrupt. And we're going to see in a few minutes that there's a reality that you and I have, if we're professing believers in Christ, to actually be different than that. To allow our minds to be being renewed and strengthened. Because even as a professing believer, if we're not, guys, we can spiral. You can take steps and you can pursue things. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in a minute. So I'm going to save that for for when we get there. But I, I love the ESV commentary on Colossians. It describes the state of the natural man as an active hostility towards God. It's, I mean, it's not a profound definition of what Paul wrote there in Colossians, but there's an active hostility in the lives of those who do not know God towards God. And our thoughts and our actions are the evidence of our hostility towards God. And so the natural condition of man presents a dilemma that God saw fit to deal with. But it was only God and only in God's way that the natural man could be addressed. It would require <clears throat> the supernatural work of God to accomplish this reconciliation. You got the natural condition of man coupled with the supernatural work of God. <clears throat> Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's two supernatural works here of God. One, reconciliation, and two, sanctification. We've talked quite a bit already about reconciliation because Paul, as we said, we saw a couple weeks back, he's already used this idea. We've walked through it, okay? But again, just a reminder, to be reconciled is to be brought from from afar off to near, okay? We've seen there's an enmity, A hostility between the natural man and God. And the only hope for the natural man is the intervention of God. Your only hope is the intervention of God. That's it. And Paul reemphasizes that it is God who has made this reconciliation possible. How? By the death of Christ. Through the body of Christ that was killed. God in that way moved to bring man near to him. You and I could never do the work of reconciliation because our disposition towards him is hostility. In our natural state, we are enemies of God's and we cannot work to change that. And this is why the grace of God in Christ is so amazing. God is the offended party. We are estranged from God, not God estranged from us. He is the offended party who we have been separated from because of the presence of sin in our lives. And yet, in his offense, he has moved to make reconciliation possible. But it wasn't just so that we could say, yay, we've been reconciled. Reconciliation is for a purpose. The purpose is sanctification. So that we could be made more like Jesus. So that the evil intents and thoughts and deeds and things that characterize our lives can be brought into subjection to God's word. And that we can begin living out a way that that, that rightly represents this and him. That we could grow to be more and more like Christ. 
God has bridged the gap that is reconciliation, and now he's working on a process of conforming those who are reconciled to be like Jesus. You know that today? If you say that you've trusted Christ for salvation, God's word would teach us that God is now at work in you to make you more like Jesus. God is now at work in you to make you more like Jesus. And what is Jesus like? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. The truth is, each of these points to the future. They point to the work that God is doing now that will be fully realized when you meet Jesus. He has died in order that we might be presented to Christ as holy, blameless, and above reproach. This is a lifelong reality. You don't reach a plateau in this life. You don't have breath in your lungs to say, I've made it. You don't have breath in your lungs so that you can say, I'm finally who God wants me to be. I'm finally the way that God desires me to be. No, you will be the way that God desires you to be as a follower of Jesus Christ when you're dead. Because that's when, in the fact that you've been saved by the grace of God, you are presented to Jesus, holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so between now and then, God is at work in us. God is at work in the lives of those who profess faith. Spiritual growth is not for some seasons. Spiritual growth is not about when times are good. It's not for now or later. It's for the rest of your life following your reconciliation. But the good news of this sanctification is that just as God is the one who moved to make reconciliation possible, it's God who does the sanctifying work. Paul would tell the Philippians in chapter 1 of his letter to them that God is faithful to his work in their lives. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God has begun a work in you, meaning you have been reconciled to him, he will continue to work into, in you until he brings it to completion. He brings it to completion, as we have already stated, when we die. Our lives until then are about being transformed into Christ. How long does he do this work? Until the day of Christ. And God is not going to quit doing this work if he is, in fact, in you. Again, this work of God is pointing ahead to a day when it's fully realized. Brothers and sisters, we live in the already not yet. We've been reconciled. We've been declared right We've been declared holy. We've been declared blameless before God. We've been declared above reproach. Practically, we're still working that out. God is at work in us in the not yet part of the already not yet. Your reconciliation is real and it's accomplished, but it's not fully realized on your part. And because of that, God is at work in us. And so the supernatural work of God in the life of the natural man As we've said, it's the beginning of this lifelong process of looking to being with Christ for all of eternity. And the gospel that reconciled us is also the source of the hope that continues in the life of the believer. And this hope that we have should be evident. 
right? And so lastly, we see there's the continual hope of the gospel. There's the natural condition of man. There's the supernatural work of God that changes the natural condition of man. And then the natural man that has his condition changed. Supernatural work of God is now resting in the continual hope of the gospel. The work of God and Christ propels us to the place where we are presented as described in verse 22, right? Holy, blameless, above reproach. But it doesn't happen by accident. God is faithful to complete the work he has started in reconciling mankind to himself. But here's what's really interesting about that. How does Paul begin verse 23? with a clause. If. You see, God is faithful. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to work in you to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach if. Wait a minute. There's a condition? There's a clause here to God working in me to make me like Jesus? And this clause is, is, is describing a real condition. It's not a debate on whether or not a true believer can, can fall away. right? We have these conversations where it says, if so, does that mean if I was a true believer and then I don't live like that true believer, that now I'm not a true believer? No, Paul's not engaging in that conversation here. But here's what Paul is saying very, very practically when he uses the clause, if. Here's what he's saying continue in Christ. The warning, the admonition is, don't fall away. God is going to do this if you continue in Christ. Don't fall away. Remain stable and steadfast. Do not abandon the hope that you've heard from in this gospel. Continue. Stay the course. There's a real likelihood that many of those who profess faith will fall away because they don't stand firm. They don't remain stable. You and I must be aware of the reality that we, we can waver. If we don't remain stable and steadfast, we're easily tossed to and fro. We ebb and flow. We've been, we've been working through James in, in, in growth groups, right? And James talking about a double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. He says, you should ask nothing of God and expect to get it when you are unstable, when you are double-minded in your ways. And here we see Paul's writing to the Colossians saying, look, man, God is at work in you guys, but you got to continue in the faith. You've got to hang on to the hope of the, the gospel. And here's just a practical reality or outworking of this. As people who profess faith in Christ waffle on their faith, you know what's going to be lacking? Your confidence that you're right with Christ. When you waffle, when you go back and forth, when you're tossed to and fro, when you're not stable and steadfast, you know, questions start to rise. Assurance questions start to, to come up. Our confidence begins to wane in the fact that God is at work in us doing what he promised that he would do. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're a professing believer, here's an exhortation for you. Be vigilant. Be purposeful. Be intentional. Nothing is stable and steadfast by accident. 
Okay? You're going to build a, some kind of a structure? You don't want somebody who doesn't know what they're doing just throwing stuff together at the bottom of it, hoping that it will work out. You want somebody who knows what they're doing. To mark things off the right way, to pour the concrete to the appropriate thickness, to build a foundation that is stable and that is strong and that is able to withstand the storms that it is going to be up against. Believers, we must be vigilant. J.I. Packer says this about the believer's current life. The only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. (laughs) I love it. I love the reality that if we say we know Jesus, our lives should reflect it. What a concept. What a concept of God's word that those who were once afar off from God, those who were once aliens, those who were once estranged, those who were once hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, have now come to understand the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now their life looks like it? What a concept. We got people in our churches running all over the place, naming the name of Jesus, still hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. You want to know if you're converted? The only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. Live like Jesus has actually reconciled you. A life of convertedness is a life that looks ahead to the promises that the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought into view. We must always remember that the gospel is the hope for all human beings, not just at the moment of your salvation, but at every single point of your life. You You know when, as a professing believer, you stop living according to God's word, You know when you stop living in ways that are glorifying to God and and that, that, that bring him glory and make a difference in the world around you? It's when you lose sight of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, that in your natural state, you could do nothing to change it. You could do nothing to get near to God. But God, in his supernatural workings, gave Jesus Christ. He's perfect, we're not, we've got a dilemma, he has intervened. And when you believe that, it changes your life. When you live your life focused on that, it changes your life. Paul says, you've been reconciled. God's working in you to make you holy and blameless. You ought to continue stable and steadfast in this faith that you claim to present your eyes ought to remain fixed on jesus your minds or your eyes ought to remain fixed on the fact that this is not it yes we are here but we're only here for a moment there is something after this and that something for the believer is realized in the gospel not only has god come sent christ to give us life abundantly john 10 10 Yeah, we can have life abundantly now, but in Christ, man, you get to have life forevermore. For all of eternity, you live in the presence of God as Savior. We look ahead to this, brothers and sisters. 
And our lives should reflect this. God has begun a work of sanctification in you if you have trusted him for salvation. Now, salvation was necessary because your condition was bleak and out of control, but God. Please just stop right there. But God. We had no hope. We were lost, dead in our trespasses and sins. No claim to God and his goodness in any way could do nothing to change it but God. That's it. That says it all. But God. You were dead, but God made you alive. You can't grow yourself, but God is growing you. These truths point to the future promises of God in Christ. So if you know Christ, continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, anchored in the gospel. Your natural condition is bleak. The supernatural work of God is according to his grace, and we get to be the benefactors of that. And so if you know that to be true in your life, continue in the faith that you have professed. And I want to issue, I guess, another challenge this morning, I would say. And I, I say these kinds of things often, and I'm okay with that. But, you know, when you look at, if you're in my position, you look out here at a room that's got, with the kids out of here, there's probably 145, maybe 150 people sitting here. I'm just going to level with you. Some of you are still in your natural state. Everybody in this room, statistically, we would understand and agree, everybody in this room doesn't know Christ. Some of you in this room are still alienated from God and estranged afar off from him. Some of you are still living out of the hostility of your minds and doing evil deeds. And the, the progression of your evil deeds is only growing. You've heard the reality this morning of your condition. You've heard this morning that God in his grace and in his mercy has done what needed to be done to remedy your condition. And God has promised to work in you when you place your faith and trust in him. So maybe today is the day when your mind is a little less hostile towards God, that by faith and believing who God is, believing what God has accomplished through Christ, believing that God is at work in you, believing that there is an eternity awaiting all people, maybe today is the day that you place your faith and trust in Christ, that you believe in Jesus for salvation and you allow God to reconcile you from the state of your natural condition into the, the, the state of a right relationship with him because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done. And if that's you today, I would love to talk with you this morning. There is no shame in asking questions. There is no shame in acknowledging the fact that, man, I, I do think I'm separated from God. I'm still living in that natural state. And if that's you today, I'd love to talk with you, pray with you, whatever the need that you may have might be today. If you're in the natural state, you need Christ. Maybe today's the day of reconciliation. But if you know Christ and you've been reconciled, the exhortation is to remain in it, to live and of subjection to God's word, a life that is pleasing and glorifying to him that is built upon the hope of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, your word is powerful. It tells us everything that we need to know in terms of life and godliness. It tells us of our condition before you. It tells us of your work to change that. And as we saw this morning in Equip class, we believe who Jesus is and we believe what Jesus has done. God gives us the right to be his children. 
You give us the right to be your children. So, Father, I pray today that you would work in our hearts and lives. I pray, God, that you would help us, perhaps first and foremost today, to just be honest. Are we living in the natural state? Do our lives look more like hostility towards you, defined by and characterized by evil deeds? Or do they look like lives that are anchored in the hope of the gospel? The truth is, God, you know our hearts even better than we do. And I would pray today, God, that you would work in such a way that we might come to know them. That we might be willing to be honest about what we would come to know about them. That today might be the day where we would need to surrender ourselves wholeheartedly for salvation. That maybe today is the day where we need to surrender something that is affecting our ability to be stable and steadfast and to, to remain wholeheartedly in the faith of the gospel. God, I pray, it's my prayer that, that our desire, I can't pray it for anybody, I can only pray it for myself, but I can pray, God, that you would give us the desire to live lives that are rooted in your gospel and, God, that bring you glory, that propel us forward to the hope that the gospel has established. Father, work in our hearts and lives today for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.